1 John chapter 3, verse 3. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Whatever a man sets the eyes of his mind on and journeys toward directly affects the inside of his soul. This is especially so when the hope is spiritual and as for its promise, becoming like the Savior. 1 Corinthians 15, 49, As we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Barnes on this, the argument here is that the connection which is formed between the believer and the Savior is as close as that which subsisted between him and Adam, and as that connection with Adam involved the certainty that he would be subject to pain, sin, sickness, and death, so the connection with Christ involves the certainty that he will be like him, be free from sin, sickness, pain, and death, and like him will have a body that is pure, incorruptible, and immortal. When men draw near to Christ by choice, this creates a bond between them and Christ. From this act of faith is created a union between the sinner and their Lord. It is this hope of being united with the Savior and being made to share in his heavenly image that purifies the soul, even as he is pure. The glory and beauty of the Savior first resides in the fact of his purity. It is not just that Jesus did not sin and was able to resist the sinful urges in his body, but rather in him is no sin. He was sinless, holy, without defect or blemish. Hebrews 7.26 For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. It is also this purity, cleanliness of heart and soul, that Christ passes on to those who believe in him. John 15.3 Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. What then begins on the earth with Christ's words cleaning the soul and the Holy Spirit enlightening the heart will be finished when Jesus returns from heaven to completely transform the saint's body. In short, the ministry of the Son of God is purposed to bring repentant sinners into his own divine image and purity. And just as he is pure, so shall all those who believe upon him by, and by his power share in his own divine pure and eternal spiritual nature. Through the Son of God there is hope of being delivered from the corruption of sin and evil in this world. Verse 4 now. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Sin is contrary to divine law, even as it is to God's holy nature. It leads men to do as they please and not as God wills. If a man remains indifferent to his sin and perceives no harm in breaking God's commandments, then you can be sure that Jesus Christ is not his Lord. Practically speaking, those born of God and filled with his Spirit will be recognized by their obedience and subjection to the gospel, and not their rejection and breaking of it. Barnes on this, it seems evident, the apostle is here combating an opinion, which then existed, that people might sin and yet be true Christians. And he apprehended that there was danger that this opinion would become prevalent. On what ground this opinion was held is unknown. Perhaps it was held that all that was necessary to constitute religion was to embrace the doctrines of Christianity or to be orthodox in the faith. Perhaps that it was not expected that people would become holy in this life and therefore they might indulge in acts of sin. Perhaps 
that Christ came to modify and relax the law, and that freedom which he procured for them was freedom to indulge in whatever people choose. Perhaps that, since Christians were heir of all things, they had a right to enjoy all things. Perhaps that the passions of people were so strong that they could not be restrained, and that therefore it was not wrong to give indulgence to the propensities with which the Creator has formed us. All these opinions have been held under various forms of antimonism, and it is not all improbable that some or all of them prevailed in the time of John. Antimonianism in theology is the belief that Christians, by virtue of divine grace, are freed from not only biblical law and church-prescribed behavioral norms, but also from all moral law. The ideas of antimonianism had been present in the early church, and some Gnostic heretics believed that freedom from law meant freedom for license. While it is true that a person is saved by grace through faith, it is equally true that neither grace nor faith allows men to continue in sin and break divine law. Grace gives no man the right to sin, because if it did, it would totally negate the purpose of God imparting to men his spirit, which infuses its recipients with the strength, power, and ability to keep God's will and statutes. Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six: A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you, or my spirit will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Whenever a man is truly saved, the Holy Spirit will also convict him of sin, and surely not give him license to continue living in it. The Spirit provides for men the desire, power of will, and inward determination to do God's will in their life, not the freedom to abandon it. It is this transformation of the heart that proves salvation has been granted and a new Son of God has been born. Barnes on this, all sin is a violation of the law of God. The very object of the coming of Christ was to deliver his people from sin. Those who are true Christians do not habitually sin. Those who sin cannot be true Christians, but are of the devil. And he who is born of God has a germ or principle of true piety in him and cannot sin. 1 John 3, 5 now. And you know that he, Christ, was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Christ was manifested to take away sin, to free men from its dreadful end over the soul, and surely not to provide the religious freedom for men to practice it. If men profess they follow the Son of God, while excusing themselves of sin, this proves they were never truly followers of Him. In Him Christ is no sin. Therefore, to claim any close relationship with the Savior, or for that matter, any actual relationship at all, and endure sin, only confirms that true piety never existed. The Lord Jesus came to remove sin from the world and never to provide the right for those he has saved to continue living in it. Ultimately, if a man gives himself to sin, then it is certain that Christ is not his Lord. There is no ambiguity on this reality, and to think otherwise only proves that a man knows not Christ, nor the real reason and purpose for his sacrifice. Barnes on 1 John 3, 5, to take away sin. The essential argument here is that the whole work of Christ was designed to deliver us from the dominion of sin, 
not to furnish us the means of indulgence in it, and that, therefore, we should be deterred from it by all that Christ has done and suffered for us. He perverts the whole design of the coming of the Savior, who supposes that his work was in any degree designed to procure for his followers the indulgences of sin, or whoso interprets the methods of his grace as to suppose that it is now lawful for him to indulge his guilty passions. End quote. And now the Geneva Study Bible on this. An argument taken from the material cause of our salvation. Christ in himself is most pure, and he came to take away our sins by sanctifying us with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, whosoever is truly a partaker of Christ does not give himself to sin, and on the contrary, he that gives himself to sin does not know Christ. End quote. Jesus came into the world to deliver people from their sin, Matthew one twenty one, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. No man will be drawn to the Son of God until he desires both forgiveness and cleansing from the dirtiness of himself. And although it is possible to remain in religion and continue in sin, it is impossible to abide in Christ and not despise sin wherever it exists either in ourselves or in the world around us. Verse 6 now. Whosoever abideth in him, Christ, sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. The language of the apostles' argument could not be any clearer, that whosoever abideth in him, sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him. This is not to infer that true Christians never sin. They do and must humbly seek for forgiveness for it. What this means is that no one can truly abide in Christ and continue giving himself to sin. The NIV translation on this verse, No one who lives in him, Christ, keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. It is impossible to truly abide in the Son of God and continue in sin. Impossible to have either seen Christ or known him if sin remains in control of the life. Mere professors of Christ, yes. True believers of Christ, never. Whenever then men sin habitually, while claiming relationship with the Son of God, this proves them to be false professors of the faith. He who believes he has the right to sin while in religion similarly proves the falseness of his religion. It is not legalism, but truth, that informs that those who truly abide in the Savior will depart from the life of sin. And though Christians may induce stumble and not consistently obey God's will in their life, as they spiritually mature, less and less sin will be manifest in their lives. Because of their love for holiness, sin has become, if even minor, increasingly bitter, teaching us as well that sinners are not true believers, though they will often claim they are. Jesus said that he would send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, and that it, would both reprove and convict men of sin. Hence, none can truly possess God's divine nature and make allowances for any sin, great or small. The Spirit of God, which is a Holy Spirit, will not allow it. Uh, John sixteen eight. And when He is come, He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He will reprove. The word translated reprove means commonly to demonstrate by argument, to prove, to persuade anyone to do a thing by presenting reasons. 
It hence means also to convince of anything, and particularly to convince of crime. This is the meaning here. He will convince or convict the world of sin. That is, he will so apply the truths of God to men's own minds as to convince them by fair and sufficient arguments that they are sinners and cause them to feel this. This is the nature of conviction always, end quote. Verse 7 now. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous even as he is righteous. It is always a lie that implies that a man can sin, not pursue of life of righteousness, and still be a true son of God. It was this perversion of truth that the apostle warned his readers not to be deceived by. Barnes on 1 John 3, 7, Let no man deceive you, that is, in the matter under consideration, to wit, by persuading you that a man may live in sinful practices and yet be a true child of God. From this it is clear that the apostles supposed that there were some who would attempt to do this. And it was to counteract their arts that he made these positive statements in regard to the nature of true religion. End quote. Whenever men sin and do not think it is abhorrent to God, you can be sure that sin hath deceived them. It is also true that sinners, after they have rejected Christ's doctrine, will look for corrupt teachers who will allow them to continue a life of sin. A false teacher or prophet is one who is taken on the title of speaking for God, yet in truth has no real relationship to him or his divine ministry to save men. Jude 1.4 For there are certain men, crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Barnes on Jude 1.4, For there are certain men crept in unawares. The apostle now gives reason for thus defending the truth to wit that there were artful and wicked men who had crept into the church, pretending to be religious leaders, but whose doctrines tended to sap the very foundations of truth. The apostle Peter, describing these same persons, says, Who privily shall bring in damnable heresies. Substantially, the same idea is expressed here by saying that they had crept in unawares. That is, they had come in by stealth. They had not come by a bold and open avowal of their real sentiments. They professed to teach the Christian religion when, in fact, they denied some of its fundamental doctrines. They professed to be holy when, in fact, they were living most scandalous lives. In all ages, there have been men who are willing to do this for base purposes." The devil is not above wrongly dividing the truth and seeking to pervert religion in an attempt to lead people away from God. He personally did this with the Savior and will likewise attempt to do the same to those following him. Verse 8 now. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. How a man walks, and not what he says, reveals whom he is of. By continuing in sin, men show themselves to have aligned themselves with the very one who has sinned since the very beginning. The language is strong because the truth is certain. He that committeth sin is of the devil. Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible on this, 1 John 3, 8. He that committeth sin is of the devil. In contrast to he that doeth righteousness, he is a son of the devil. John does not, however, say born of the devil, for the devil begets none, nor does he create any, 
But whosoever imitates the devil becomes a child of the devil by imitating him, not by proper birth. From the devil there is not generation, but corruption. Bengal, end quote. When men walk in sin, though they may be not directly born of the devil, as God's true children are born of God, still they are of his company and move and operate in no different manner than him. In truth, sinners have as much relationship with sin and the devil as believers do with the Spirit and God. The righteous are on one side of the ledger and sinners on the other. And doctrinally and even practically, no man can bounce between the two. Verse 8 now, Barnes, that all who commit sin, even true believers, so far as they are imperfect, in this respect resemble Satan and are under his influence, since sin, just so far as it exists at all, makes us resemble him. All who habitually and characteristic sin are of the devil. This latter was evidently the principal idea in the mind of the apostle. His object here is to show that those who sinned, in the sense in which it would seem some maintained that the children of God might sin, could have no real evidence of piety, but really belonged to Satan. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. It is the devil who leads people through deception to sin against God. It is the purpose of the Son of God to undo and make of no effect the work of the devil. The overall theme of the Bible, beginning in Genesis and culminating in the book of Revelation, reveals that God's true Christ, the promised seed of the woman, would crush Satan's head and destroy all the malicious schemes and plans purpose to lead men towards spiritual rebellion. To bruise and crush the serpent's head is symbolic of that which transpires in it. This includes every devious plan to corrupt and eventually totally destroy the race of man by inciting them to reject God's authority over their lives. Hence, not only will Christ crush Satan's head, he will in the process destroy every plan, scheme, and malicious intention that has emanated and been embraced by the devil. One cannot and is not free to serve God when bound by sin. An example of Christ's accomplishment in freeing men from sin is foreshadowed in Moses delivering Israel from Egypt's Pharaoh. Just as Moses was successful in delivering Israel from Pharaoh's power, so Israel could serve God, so is Christ equally as successful, and even more so, in delivering his people from their sin to do the same. Those saved by the Son of God hath both Satan's and sin's power broken over them, enabling them to possess the spiritual freedom to serve and worship God. Colossians 2.15 and this is in reference to Christ, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Barnes on Colossians 2.15, The Christian is a free man. His great captain has subdued all his enemies, and we should not allow them again to set up their dark empire over our souls. Verse 9 now, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. No one, not one person, not one man, woman or child, can continue in sin if actually born of God. This is a biblical impossibility, and the apostle seeks to make this very important revelation abundantly clear, that once someone is born of God, then filled with God's Spirit, and made Jesus Christ their Lord, they cannot and will not continue in sin. The reason, therefore, that true saints cannot continue in sin 
is because God's seed, the Holy Spirit, has changed their heart, and now God's holy nature abides in them. John 14, 7, Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. This seed of God, which is the Holy Spirit, is the very nature of God. John 4, 24, God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Because God's eternal, the spirit he imparts to those who believe upon him is likewise eternal. 1 Peter 1, 23, for you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. The process by which men receive regeneration and the new birth is through faith in the living and written word of God. Hence, through God's holy word and son are men gifted with God's own divine and eternal nature. It is here that saints and sinners are easily distinguishable by whether or not sin still retains power over them or the Holy Spirit leads them toward fulfilling God's will for their lives. Romans 8, 6, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. For true Christians, continuing in sin is infeasible, undesirable, and loathsome. Sin cannot be continued in once God and Christ make their abode in a new son of God's heart. Sin's power has been broken, and a new holy energy now lives within, enabling a pursuit of union and communion with the Lord. Verse 10 now. In this, the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. By observing whether men continue in sin or abandon it, we can see who are God's true children and those still under Satan's control. There are but two groups of people in the earth, those born of God and those still the property of the God of this world. To distinguish who is who, we need only to observe if God's righteousness is pursued or if men remain content living a life governed by sinful lusts. He that doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither is he that continues in sin. Every tree is known by its fruit, Therefore, how a man lives and what he pursues reveals whom he truly is. For those born of God, God's will has become the primary purpose and pursuit of their life. Saints' desires are set on the higher spiritual realm and the holiness it represents. Once sanctified by Christ, there is nothing of any real substance that can draw the saved back to sin. The sinner's heart and the saint's heart also are contrary to each other, and no matter the effort, they cannot be reconciled. Hence, for the children of the devil, resistance and disobedience to divine will shall be their preferred way and manner of living. For the godly, their lives will be characterized by subjection to the gospel and the words of God's Son. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible on 1 John 3, 9. To be begotten of God and to sin are states mutually excluding one another. Insofar as one sins, he makes it doubtful whether he is born of God. Barnes on this verse, In this the children of God are manifest. That is, this furnishes a test of their true character. The test is found in doing righteousness and in the love of the brethren. The former had illustrated, the latter he now proceeds to illustrate. The general idea is that if a person is not truly a righteous person and does not love the brethren, he cannot be a child of God. 
It is not simply that those who do not righteousness are not of God, but equally true is if men love not the brethren. This indicates that any true relationship with the Father does not exist. 1 John 4.20 If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother, whom he hath seen, how can he love God, whom he hath not seen? Barnes on this verse, The general sense is that brotherly love is essential to the Christian character, and those who do not possess it cannot be a Christian. Love, and specifically love for the brethren, ultimately reveals if a man has truly been saved by Christ, born of God, or just merely walks in the company of those who are. Verse 11 now. For this is the message that we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. From the very beginning of John, being exposed to the ministry of the Son of God, he was taught by Jesus to love. It is also Christ who condensed the entire law of God into two primary commandments, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. On these two great commandments, Jesus revealed, hang the entirety of God's will for man. Uh, Barnes, on this, uh, Barnes on Matthew uh, 22.40 in respect to the commandments. Love to God and man comprehends the whole of religion. And to produce this has been the design of Moses, the prophets, the Savior, and the apostles. Verse 12 now. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. In contrast to love is envy and hate which are the devilish qualities that led Cain to kill his natural-born brother, Abel. The evil spiritual influence also that led Cain to slay Abel had for its origin the devil. Genesis 4.8 And Cain talked with Abel his brother. And it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible on Genesis 4.8 And Cain talked with Abel his brother. Under the guise of brotherly familiarity, he concealed his premeditated purpose till a convenient time and place occurred for the murder. It is common when men have not love for God and their fellow man that they will resort to deceptive words to conceal their true motives. This Cain did with his brother while secretly scheming and plotting his death. After also Cain led Abel into a field, away from physical sight, so that no one could see his evil intent. It is said he rose up and attacked him. Like Satan himself, Cain was subtle, appearing innocent, and of no real threat, until such time that he arose with vengeance to murder one better than himself. The Hebrew word for slew is herag, defined as kill, slay, implying ruthless violence, especially private violence. No doubt the crime scene, which screamed of Abel's blood being shed, revealed the true character of his murder. There was no divine love in Cain, and this vacuum left the door wide open for envy and hate. The lesson is that even as love will prevent sin, its absence allows full space for it. Thus, when men do not obey Christ's command to love, there is no other path for them to follow than that which is harmful, not only to themselves, but sadly to others as well. Where love is not, the devil will gladly take its place. Who was of the wicked one? There was no neutrality in Cain's heart, no mere indifference to either good or evil. Instead, he had fully and willingly consented 
to being led by and carrying out the purpose of the wicked one. Barnes on 1 John 3.12, who was of the wicked one, of the devil, that is, he was under his influence and acted from his instigation. Because his own works were evil and his brothers righteous, the cause of Cain's hate lied in the fruitlessness and shallowness of his own character. This is often that which prompts envy and hate towards the righteous. When men sense the absence of true goodness within themselves, he therefore who is unrighteous will often despise and hate those who are. In truth, when an evil man is exposed to a good man, then it is difficult for him not to see his own lack of spiritual integrity. Because also jealousy can grow. If controlling enough, violence will ensue. This is seen in Saul when he envied David and sought to take David's life. In Abel, Cain's own lack of true spirituality and absence of love for God was exposed. Consequently, he hated both Abel and the fact that Abel's offering was accepted and his own was not. Genesis 4.4 And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. Verse 13 now. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. There should be no surprise if the world hates us, since it also hated the Lord Jesus and all God's messengers before him. For this reason, Christians should not marvel, nor be surprised, nor think in an unnatural thing that an evil world that has rejected God will likewise despise them. 2 Corinthians 2.16 To the one, we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other, the savor of life unto life, and who is sufficient for these things. Barnes on this verse. We are the savor of death unto death. We are the occasion of deepening their condemnation and of sinking them lower into ruin. The expression used here means literally, to the one class we bear a death-conveying odor leading to their death, a savor, a smell which, under the circumstances, is destructive to life and which leads to death. Mr. Locke renders this, to the one my preaching is of ill savor, unacceptable and offensive, by their rejecting whereof they draw death on themselves. Grateful as their labors were to God and acceptable as would be their efforts, Whatever might be the results, yet Paul could not be ignorant that the gospel would in fact be the means of greater condemnation to many. It was indeed by their own fault, yet wherever the gospel was preached, it would too many have this result. Verse 14, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. The appearance of divine love in the Christian's heart is proof of his conversion, and that now he is passed from death unto light. Yet where divine love does not exist, whether in the church or out of it, then neither does God's salvation. It is also worthy of note that love for the brethren confirms that a man has been declared righteous before God. No man can enter heaven or be given eternal life without first being made righteous. If love then is present, which is the work of the Holy Spirit, This is sure proof that righteousness has been imparted and eternal life is now possessed. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible on 1 John 3, 14. Because we love the brethren, the ground, not of our passing over out of death into life, but of our knowing that we have so. Love on our part is the evidence of our justification 
and regeneration, not the cause of them. Let each go to his own heart. If he find their love to the brethren, let him feel assured that he has passed from death unto life. The divine qualities of love, joy, and peace, as well as the other fruits of the Spirit, cannot exist in an unsaved man. They are fruits of the Spirit of God and cannot be truly manufactured nor properly imitated by those who have not the Spirit. Love for the brethren proves a man has been acquitted of his sins and is now declared righteous before God. Verse 15. Whoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hate does not initially manifest itself on the outside, but always is known by God on the inside. Benson on 1 John 3.15, Every degree of hatred being a degree of the same temper which moved Cain to murder his brother. End quote. Barnes on this verse, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. The private malice, the secret grudge, the envy which is cherished in the heart is murderous in its tendency. And were it not for the outward restraints of human law and the dread of punishment, it would often lead to the act of murder. The apostle does not say that he who hates his brother, though he does not in fact commit murder, is guilty to the same degree as if he had actually done it. But he evidently means to say that the spirit which would lead to murder is there and that God would hold him responsible for it, end quote. It is the ministry of the Son of God to reveal the secret things in men's heart and ultimately to judge them, Romans 2.16, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. If there is inward hate towards a brother, it is considered the same as murder. And no murder, nor anyone who hates the brethren, has eternal life abiding in them. Just as love proves the presence of eternal life, hate establishes its absence. There is no doubt that when men hate, it is impossible for God to consider them as his true sons. Ultimately, there are but two base emotions that are at the core of what men think of the brethren. One is love, the other is hate. And though some may try and attempt to conceal the latter, still its presence is known by God. No murder hath eternal life, and those who hate are considered by God as just that. Verse 16. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life, Christ, for, the, for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. In contrast to a world filled with hate is the example of love found in Jesus Christ. Hence, where Cain's hate took the life of his brother, Christ's love gave his own life as a sacrifice for others. The contrast is seen in the world's first murderer, Cain, and this world's Savior, Jesus Christ. Cain and Jesus Christ, therefore, are set as examples of what hate will end in, and what true love also will ultimately produce. By Christ's love in laying down his life for the brethren, divine love became visible. In Jesus Christ, we have the very essence of what true love is. Surprisingly, Christ did not reveal a higher form of love, which of course he could reveal no other, but only that in him is seen what true and divine love really is. This is why not until a man is willing to give his life to God, as Christ also first did, for the benefit of others, is Christ's love possessed. This is the standard of true discipleship, to live and lay down our lives for the brethren, as also our Savior has done for us. In doing so, the lives and the manner in which we live brings praise, glory, worship, and remembrance of the Savior himself. By laying down our lives in service to God and for our brethren is the love of Christ manifested again, and his sacrifice mirrored in those who call him Lord. Verse 17. 
But whosoever hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? One of the chief ways to determine if men love or not is if they are willing to give up their own earthly resources when a brother is in need. All love gives, and there is not true love that can ignore and not come to the aid of those in need. If the heart remains closed to the lack of necessities of those around us, especially our brethren, then it is certain God's love has no true place in us. Where need is, love responds, and nowhere more willingly than where there is actual need and want in those also born of God. Verse 18 now, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and truth. The Geneva Bible, 1 John 3.18, Christian charity stands not in word, but in deed, and proceeds from a sincere affection. Pool on 1 John 3.18, It is a vain thing to make verbal pretenses of love without any real proof of it. End quote. Verse 19, And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. It is only by sincerely walking in love that assures the believer that he is of the truth. Where a hypocrite has no inward assurance that he is of God, the man who genuinely loves does, teaching us that love does more for the conscience and soul than any religious duty ever could. It is thus only by doing the word and not merely hearing it that the conscience is quieted and assurance is given to ourselves that we are indeed God's children. Obedience to the gospel having for its unsuspecting end producing internal confidence of our own spiritual standing. And now uh, pool on 1 John 3.19, And shall assure our hearts before him, so shall our hearts be quieted and well satisfied concerning our states Godward. Amen.